Well, Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas. It is so good to see you all this evening. Thank you for coming out. Despite the uh, problems with uh, the COVID cases and uh, the wearing of masks and the temperatures and things, it really is great just to join together as a family once again this evening. So welcome. And for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, a really, I mean this evening, a really warm welcome to, to you as well. It's great to see some faces I haven't seen for a while. You know, at Christmas time, Christians celebrate the greatest event that has ever taken place. Did you hear that? The greatest event that has ever taken place. It is, without a doubt, the most unique event that has occurred in all of history. This uh, event, this grace in a manger, wasn't about a brief moment of fame in the media and then forgotten about a couple of days later or a few weeks or even months later. This grace in a manger, this event, was about the birth of a baby. And the world is still not totally sure of exactly what happened. Still a lot of people, a lot of questions, not, how, what is this all about? It was a birth, when we read from Scripture, that was noticed by only a few shepherds, and uh, there were some prophets along the way, and there were uh, a few uh, wise men, and uh, there were angels and, and a couple of other people. And it was a birth that took place not in the beautiful halls of a, a royal palace, but it was a birth that took place in a village, and not in a comfortable room in a house in a village or in an inn in a village. It was a birth that took place in a space where animals lived. It was the birth of our, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is how the God of the universe chose to come to us. This is what Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2. He says, while they were there, while um, Joseph and, and Mary were in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And behind the innocence of this baby in a manger is this power. A power in this event that actually goes beyond our finite human conception. It, 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 it really, when you think about it, it'll, it, it blows our minds. It's a mind-blowing event. This baby Jesus is at the same time God. The infinite, omnipotent creator of the universe. This tiny little being that Mary is holding in her arms has all of the power of divine love and wisdom. And everything gets zeroed in. Everything focuses in onto this one small space in time. The angel, when he was speaking to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, said that Mary would conceive. And he confirmed the fact that she was a virgin. The virgin will conceive and bear a son. And that they were to name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is with us. And for more than 2,000 years, here we are, you know, and we continue to celebrate the physical event of God's birth as a baby on earth. But really, 
The reason why we are here this evening is because something's taken place on the inside. There is a, there is a spiritual event which gives this physical event power. It's God's activity in our lives. It's God reaching every one of us. In fact, God might be moving here right now in, in the hearts, in this moment. That's the real reason why we continue to celebrate an event that took place so many centuries ago. But why? Why did God become Jesus? Why am I a Christian? I mean, I mean how, can I, how can I possibly believe that a historical flesh and blood human being named Jesus actually was God with us? Really, how can any logical, rational, or scientific person believe such an illogical, unscientific, and really it's a preposterous thing? How could, how could anyone believe in God? There's really, there's not a shred of, of, of evidence, of scientific evidence for the existence of God. You, you can't see God with your eyes. You can't hear God with your ears. You can't smell God or taste God or touch God. You know, based on the physical senses, there is no good reason to believe that there is any such thing as God. If you think about science, science deals with things that can be perceived with the physical senses, either directly or through various extensions. And we look, look at stuff through microscopes or through telescopes. And, and because God is generally spoken of as a non-material being, it, it means that God is beyond the scope of science, which is why so many people deny the existence of God. They deny that there is a God. Atheists and skeptics everywhere ask the question, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence for a God? And without evidence, without any scientific evidence, evidence that can be perceived with the physical senses, they say it's baseless, it's, it's irrational to believe in God. Many atheists and, and, uh, and skeptics, actually, when it comes to people who do believe, uh, perhaps like some of you here this evening, uh, they have a disdain for people like you. They think of Christians as ignorant and unsophisticated, or at least blind and, and stupid when it comes to their beliefs. Because not only do Christians believe that there is some imaginary God in the sky, the thing about Christians is they actually believe the fairy tales that are written in this book. They believe the fairy tales about a, a virgin birth that some guy named Jesus is God. I mean, that's crazy. It's just, it's the most irrational idea ever. It goes against every principle of biology and genetics. I mean, if, if, if the idea of God has no evidence to support it, the idea that Jesus was God, that, that he was born of a virgin, no less, Courtesy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's just it's crazy. I mean, clearly, anybody who believes such a silly, uns unscientific idea, you know, this, this, this trivial nonsense, anybody who believes this must have a few screws loose. <laughs> anybody with some loose screws the other day? But actually, actually, there's, there's actually a really... Uh, uh, 
a lot of evidence for the existence of God. It's just that none of it is um, scientific material evidence. I mean, I can't actually, I can introduce you to God right now, but I can't physically introduce you to God right now. Come shake his hand. Hi, God, how are you? I can't can't do that. But the evidence for God comes by way of our physical senses. You know if God touches your heart, if your spirit is moved, you sense that. Many of you here this evening will be able to testify to the fact that you felt something. You, You may have even seen a miracle as a result of God moving in your life. But the evidence is not physical. God is, God is spirit. He's, he's, he's non-material. So we should expect that the evidence for God would come through non-material channels. And that's exactly what we find. Throughout history, in every culture, in every region around the world, God has reached out to the minds and the hearts of so many people who have provided an oral testimony or a written testimony to the existence and the reality of God and Spirit. And that testimony has been passed down from generation to generation. So the world is full of testimony to the existence of God. And it comes in many ancient uh, manuscripts and, uh, and letters and books that have been written. And they all record the ways in which God has touched humans on earth from within. And at times there have been signs and wonders that people have pointed to and said, How do you explain that? There's also a vast amount of literature. Just go to any Christian bookstore. There's huge amounts of literature detailing the spiritual experience and the interpretation of of what it's all about. And there's there's, there's works on the instruction and, and practical guides of how do I live this out? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What is Christianity all about? There's so much. You know, in the West, one of the first major books to be printed was the Bible. And if anything, when it comes to knowledge and information about God, we we honestly, we've got a treasure trove of documents. For anyone who wants to believe in God and who's willing to accept sources of information other than physical proof, there is a massive amount of evidence for the existence of God. And it's been distributed through all peoples and all cultures around the world. None of it is scientific evidence, but it is human evidence. So I think the the more realistic thing to say uh, about the issue is not whether there is evidence. It's more about what evidence are you willing to accept? Because if we're willing to accept only the evidence of the physical senses, we're most likely going to reject the idea of God. We're going to say, well, there's no real physical scientific evidence, so I might as well be an atheist. But if we're willing to accept evidence that comes from within from within the realm of the the human experience in the heart and in the mind, then we're going to say there's plenty of reasons to believe in God. But here we are, a little over 2,000 years later, and and, um, even though we have this vast amount of human literature and all of this experience which points to the existence of God, how can we possibly believe that God actually became human in the person of Jesus Christ? How? how? I mean, I mean there, there are many religions that believe in God, but there's only one faith. The Christian faith 
believes in Jesus Christ as this uh, unique human expression of God. How do we make the leap? How do we make the leap from a creator God, a God who's above all things? How do we make the leap from that God to a human being? Jesus Christ who lived among us. Even if we do believe in God, isn't isn't believing in Jesus as God still illogical and irrational? I mean, really, really, let's be honest here this evening. Can we really believe in all of that stuff about a virgin birth? Why, why, why should we accept that in the case of Jesus, it really happened? How could, how could such a far-fetched idea be central to one of the, 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 one of the most important or biggest faiths in, 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 in the world? The biggest kind of, people would say, a religion of humanity. Isn't, isn't it still pretty illogical? Well, there is an answer, and the answer lies in a higher form of logic, the logic of love, the logic of love. God is love, and that makes all the difference. In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John wrote these words. He said, God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. So if, as the Bible says, God is love, and if as Christians believe that God is all-powerful, and if as that famous verse in, in the Gospel of John, John 3.16, if it says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him is never going to die, is going to have an eternity of life. If, 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 if God is love, if God is all-powerful, and if he really loved the world that much, doesn't it throw new light onto the subject? The Bible says in in the book of Mark that all things are possible with God. And so if there is something, if all things are possible with God, and if there's something that God wants to do out of his infinite tender love for humanity, don't you think God would kind of find a way to do it or make a way to do it? Don't you think he'd make a way to do it? I mean, I mean, what would you do? Let's put this into a human example just for, for a moment. Let's say this evening that you're a parent of a 12-year-old boy. Any 12-year-old sons here of parents of 12-year-old boys? No? Close? Close? Close enough. Okay. There's one over there. Yeah, he refuses to acknowledge. And yeah, okay. So you're a parent of a 12-year-old boy. And you love him. And you want the best for him. But unfortunately, he has gotten friendly with a a kid who lives on the same street that you live on, and this other kid is like bad news. He's like a bully, right? And maybe this kid is a couple of years older than your son, and, and the thing is your son looks up to him. He sees him as a role model, but this this older boy walks around the neighborhood with a bad attitude. Everybody just kind of steers clear of him. Nobody wants really, he's got a foul mouth. He's, everything he does is just bad. He's, he graffitis everything. He's just, he's just bad news. When he goes to the park, families pick up their children and they leave the park. This is a bad bully. But to your son's pre-adolescent mind, he looks like the coolest kid around. Woo-hoo, I want to be like him. And you've warned your son. You've said, don't 
don't be friends with him. This is, this is a bad news guy. He's, 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 he's going to get you into trouble and I love you and I don't want you to get into trouble. And maybe one day he's, you're going to do something that he's not going to like and he's going to turn on you. But your son won't listen. And he's starting to get into trouble. And it's breaking your heart. The ranger is knocking on your door a couple of times a week. And then one day, you hear this shouting from outside on the street. You hear this commotion. And you go and you look out the window and you see your son lying flat on his back. And the bully's on top of your son. And the bully's just bang, bang, punching him. And his head's going from side to side. And there's just blood all over his face. Let me ask you, as a parent, what would you do next? Would you, would, you, would, you, would, you, would you let the bully beat your son senseless? Would you say, yes, he needs a lesson, teach him a lesson? Would you do that? Would you open the window and say, stop it? Would you pick up the phone and say, well, I'm going to phone the police and I'll wait until the police get here if they can sort it out? No, you'd never do that, not in a million years. I'll tell you exactly what you do. You'll open up your front door and you'll storm out there. You'll race out there. You'll drag that kid off of your son, man. You'd give that kid a piece of your mind. You know, if, if you've got your anger in, in place and if you, you know, if you can control your fury, you're probably just going to tell that kid that if he ever lays a hand on your son again, he's, you know, this, his life is in danger. You're going to do something like that. Yeah? Or put a dog on him. There you go. <laughs> and then probably what you're going to do is you're going to take that boy of yours, that little boy, you're going you're gonna to pick him up, you're going to take him inside, you're going to get him cleaned up, you're going to tend to his wounds, and you're probably going to tell him how much you love him. That's what any good parent, I think, would do. And according to the Bible, God is the ultimate parent. God created us and God loves us deeply. And God wants the best for us eternally. So, so wouldn't God be at least as good a parent as, as we are? You know, 2,000 years ago, when God looked out of the window of heaven down onto the street here on earth, what did God see? God saw a world in the grip of the ultimate bully. The Bible calls that bully the devil. And he manifests the full force of human evil. And what God saw was a world that was in the grip of evil. And violence covered the earth and nations and empires arose and oppressed the people and human life was cheap and expendable. And people were dying like flies. And God looked down and he saw that human life was short and it was brutish and it was getting worse. It wasn't getting better. Kings oppressed men. Men oppressed women. Men and women oppressed children. It was a despicable picture. The world of human society was lying on its back getting its lights punched out by the vast bully of the combined forces of darkness and human selfishness and greed and, 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 this, and this ever wanting grasping of humanity for wealth and for power. And God had warned us about this so many, many times. God had sent priests and he had sent prophets to teach us, to preach to us about how foolish and how dangerous a path we were on. But we wouldn't listen. And here we were, flat on our back, pinned down under the weight of all of this evil and this oppression, having our life, both our physical and our spiritual life, squeezed and pounded out of us. If you were God, what would you do? 
That's why God became Jesus. It wasn't because God was angry at us. It wasn't because God desired to punish us for our sins. No. It was because God loved us. God loved us so much that he could not bear to stand by and watch and see us bloodied and broken in body and spirit. And God had to come to us. God had to come to us personally to face evil, to face the devil, to face the hell of it straight on. God had to pull that bully off of us and and kick him in a place which is a very sore place and make him run off with his tail between his legs. And God had to pick us up and carry us home and clean us up and, and tend to our wounds and bring us back to life and to health, both physically and spiritually. So yes, from, from a, um, the perspective of a skeptical world, the idea that God became Jesus is the most unscientific, irrational, and illogical idea ever. But God is not bound by our human materialistic logic. God follows a higher logic. God's logic is the logic of love. And that's why I believe and I know in my heart that God became Jesus. This kind of love is about a God who loves us so much that he would do nothing else than come to our rescue. You know, folk, tonight, around this planet on which we live, there will be hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people living in a state of hopelessness, thinking that no one can save them, thinking that no one, not even God, loves them. And the saddest thing for me is that even amongst those people are Christians who have heard that God loves them, but, but, but they still have a sneaking suspicion. They, or maybe it's just an outright conviction that they are the one, con, one exception. How could God possibly love me? Look at me. How could God love me? But it's not true. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you. No matter how much you might have resisted God's will in your life, no matter how much you might have pursued the ways of this world, I want to tell you this evening, I want to remind you, God still loves you. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can cause God to stop loving you. And that's because God is love. And God's not capable of doing anything else but loving you. And even if he were capable of not loving you, he would not, not want to love you. Because that's who he is. He would, he would do anything just to love you. When God looks at you, God sees your worth. God sees your beauty. God sees your value. When God looks at you, he sees the wonder in you. God sees everything that you will become, and he sees your future. And let me tell you something, it's not only in this world, it's in the new creation. He sees you as a resurrected being. He knows everything about you. He knows the beginning from the end. And I think when we get a picture of that, when we get a picture of the fact that God's plan is for, a, is for a, the world not to be burnt up and destroyed, but for God to bring it to the fulfillment of all things and to bring in a new creation where heaven meets earth, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about eternity, your eternity, my eternity, I think when we realize just how much God loves us, each one of us in a unique and specific way, 
that He has created us, each one of us, for a unique and specific purpose on this earth and the one to come. I think when we get to grips with that, it'll change the way we view ourselves and it will change the meaning of our life right now. God sees you as a particular person. He sees your character. He knows who you are. He knows your ability to love and to serve the people who He has put around you, the people in your life. And you can love them in a way that no one else can. And I'll tell you, everything that you've done, everything that you've experienced in your life is, or, or at least it can be, a part of God's plan for your eternal joy. So may you know this Christmas Eve that God did come and manifested himself in human form in the person of Jesus Christ. God became like us. And love made a way. God loved this world so much that he sent his only son. The promised one has come. And he has come to change our eternity. Jesus was born. And he was born our Savior, our Messiah, our King. And I hope that this evening you just take a moment to think about that because it makes all the difference in the world. We don't come out of habit. We come because we know that through him is life. And we've come to celebrate that fact this evening. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'll pray and then we're going to sing a last song. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every individual here tonight. I thank you, God, for every individual who has opened up their life to you. And surrender their life to you. And I pray, God, for you to do a work of revelation. As we sit on the brink of another new year, as the world finds itself in a place of destruction and despair, may we look to you for our hope. May we look to you for our joy. And may we know that you love us. And you've got something planned for us that is so amazing that we can't even conceive the goodness that it is. Father, bring to life the story once again. Not just of a little baby in a manger, but bring to life the power that is behind that story. In Jesus' name, amen.